0: Sermon preparation is important, and John Dugah has done that, and I'm excited to hear part four of his study, the book of Hebrews. The study is just uh, a golden thread through the whole book, and just exalts Christ again and again and again and again, and it's really good. And if you weren't able to join us yesterday, most of you weren't, I would encourage you to look at our, our Sepulveda Bible Church Facebook page. And you can um, listen to those three messages yesterday, and it's just very, very well done. Um, So right now, I think we're being joined by the church over at Grace Bible Church in Tulsa, where John is is pastor. Um, Jeff Foster uh, wanted the point to be made, as John taught us yesterday, that the Puritans said that if... You didn't turn the hourglass over at least twice. The pastor wasn't very well prepared. And and so Jeff made sure that we have the hourglass. And so it has begun, brother. And so feel free to turn it once or twice if you like. But you come and minister to us. Let me pray for you as you're coming. Lord, I just pray for John and just pray that you help him to remember what he studied. And I thank you, God, that... Over a decade ago, he spent all this time in Hebrews and has been able, just in four messages, to give us the most beautiful words, the most clear heartbeat of the glory, the supremacy, the superiority of Christ in that amazing book. And Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And, Lord, I thank you for your servant, John, who is going to unpack for us again the words of of Hebrews. Father, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, brother.
1: Well, I invite you all to turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews. And, And just so you know, now I've got permission to go for two hours. And if that's a problem, that you can blame Jeff, right? So, And, and of course, uh, the brethren at GBC, they probably won't let me back in the door if I go two hours. But I've, done, I've gotten close a few times, I think. But um, usually the nursery workers start rebelling about that time, so after an hour. We've been talking this weekend about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, how he is superior, how he is, the, the author says over and over again, he is better. And, and we went through in our first lesson just an overview of how he's better than, and, and he lists so many different things, uh, how Jesus is better. And we looked at uh, a lot of things I'll review in just a few minutes. But as we, we think about Jesus as our high priest, and he is better than all of the high priests that went before him in the Levitical priesthood, Is he alone in his priestly work? A lot of times we, I think, tend to think that, that Jesus is the high priest, and we don't think that there's anyone with him doing any kind of priestly work. But in fact, Jesus does put us to work as priests. And he has for us very high standards. We're going to look at some of those today as he gets into in chapter 13. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 13 is to show us that this is where we're going with all... Now that we know that Jesus is superior, and in particular, he's superior as high priest, then what does that do for us? What do we... how do we need to respond? And we need to understand that he has under him... His own transformed company of priests. His own transformed company of priests. The author, back in chapter 3, verse 1, calls us to think deeply or consider Christ as apostle and high priest. How he is better than all of those who went before him. Apostles, those who were sent by God to speak for God. And even better than all of the high priest's treasuring the supremacy of Christ that that He calls us to do, that is a must-have. It's not something optional. We've been talking about this weekend uh, as everything in the Bible, right? But it's not something that's like, okay, it's a nice-to-have, and that is, you know, maybe I'll get to that. Um, It's not a nice-to-have, it's a must-have. And the writer to drive that home throughout the book and a lot of you if you have read through Hebrews and studied it some you know that one of the things that people zoom in on are the six warning passages and and those he gets very serious with the language he uses there And and especially the one that's, you know, the chapter 6. And a lot of people kind of get hung up on that trying to understand it. But even just thinking about the seriousness of these warnings. What the writer wants to drive home is that for those of you Hebrew Christians that he's writing to who think that it's a valid option to maybe go back to Judaism... Or it's a valid option to not grow in grace. You need these warnings. And so what I want to do is just briefly talk about the the six warning passages so that we will be persuaded to think deeply on Jesus as a regular part of our Christian life and to act upon what we have learned here. And so just walking through those six warning passages first... He says, do not neglect the great salvation that we've been given by Jesus there in chapter one verses or chapter two verses one through four. Second, combat spiritual hardening toward Jesus by strongly encouraging one another. And just to talk about that for a minute, the book of Hebrews is not about individual Christianity. Now, yes, each of us has to take it personally. And act upon it. But it isn't about just me and my Christian life. It is actually about all of us together doing the Christian life together. Not just Sunday mornings and Wednesdays and Bible studies. But all the time to be thinking in that way. of That this is about one another. We are a company of priests. Remember that. And we're going to develop that idea. But... With that understanding that we're we're a company of priests, we have to be looking out for each other. We have to be watching each other and helping, encouraging each other, sometimes admonishing each other when necessary, and bringing these warning passages to bear on one another's lives as we need. Third, be diligent to grow spiritually in Christ because apostasy is real. There in chapter 5 on into chapter 6. Apostasy is real. Now they know that because some of the folks in their church left Christ, they left Christianity and they went back to Judaism. They were Jewish believers and at least professing believers and they departed the faith. Apostasy is real. So we have to be diligent to grow spiritually. That's why we should have discipleship. That's why we should be involved in each other's lives. That's why we should talk with one another and, and you know, small talk's fine. You know, but we need—we should at times try to get to something deeper. And say, what are you reading? And what are you studying? What are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? How are you growing in Christ? This is all of the one another's. Fourth, take seriously ongoing willful sin against Christ. Chapter 10. We have to take that seriously. We, we can't allow in our own lives or in one another's lives ongoing willful sin, where, where we're not repenting of our sins. We need to deal with that and, and help each other to deal with that. Fifth, watch so that no root grows bearing bitter fruit among Jesus' flock. And I know sometimes we use this passage to talk about a, a, a bitter root growing in our heart, and that is where it starts. But what the author is talking about here is a one another aspect of it. He's saying that bitterness can start and take root in a person's heart, and then it spreads, right? We've seen that before in our lives, in our churches, how that bitterness can spread. And and so it's like a bitter root that goes through the flock, and it spreads and spreads and spreads until there's division. And that's how Satan wants to work. And we need to watch to make sure that that doesn't happen. That when we see even that little bitty rue of bitterness start, we need to kill it. And then number six, constantly watch out for stubborn rebellion against Jesus. Not just in your own heart, but in one another. Any stubborn rebellion against Jesus there in chapter 12. uh, And we'll, we'll touch on some of that a little bit at the very end of it in just a minute. That last warning there ends with a call for us to offer to God an acceptable service. So it's interesting that here he's, he's, he gives that sixth warning and then he calls us, the people that he's writing to and by the, in the intention of the Holy Spirit for all believers, we included, to take heed to this. Heed the warning and then offer to God this acceptable service. You see, what we've been talking about leading to, Jesus is superior as apostle, superior as high priest. And then we saw in our third session yesterday that he has this new and living way and and it is superior to the old way which we said before really was no way at all because in the old testament religion there was that, that there were all the different barriers that kept you from physically drawing near to where God was there in the tabernacle or the temple and especially that veil that kept everyone except one man once a year from going into God's presence into the holy of holies that veil declared Constantly, the way to God is shut. But then you remember we talked about how when Jesus died, the veil was torn. Now the way is open. When he died, his his body, that veil represented his body. And when he died, his sacrifice became our way to God. We go through the sacrifice of Christ and have the right to be in God's presence. In this new and living way, we're finding here, and it comes to a head in chapter 13, that Christ employs us. He employs believers in Jesus Christ. And not just men, but women as well, and young people who are believers. All who are believers in Jesus Christ are employed by Christ as priests. So as I said earlier, as high priest, Jesus has a whole priesthood under him. That's us. So you think about Jesus is higher than all, all the priests, and above them was the high priest. And above, above that high priest, now we see in Hebrews that Jesus is above. He's the great high priest, and he's way above even their high priests. Well, below Jesus, but above the high priests of Israel comes us, the company of priests who serve under Jesus. Today, we're going to explore how Christ's priests are superior to the Levitical priests. Our rights and privileges as priests are greater than those of the Old Testament priests. And this is mind blowing. You know, for Israelites, (laughs) these were were the top guys. I mean, the, the high priest of that day, spiritually speaking, he was the top spiritual leader, he was the highest. But what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that you don't want to go back to that because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as a priest, you're higher even than that guy because you actually have full access to God all the time. It's not just once a year. Now, a writer doesn't directly call us priests, but Peter does. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9, Peter calls us a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. But our writer does use plenty of priestly language in his letter, especially in this second part of the letter, starting with 10.19 and forward. When he opens this section there at 10.19, as he is explaining for us, and we saw in our third session, this new and living way that is superior. Listen to this priestly language he uses to describe us. Remember, in 1019 and following, he's talking to us, exhorting us. And he says things like, us entering the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So the Old Testament priests... They would come into that holy place with blood. And we saw that we don't come with blood. We come by means of the blood of Christ. We have the right now because of what Christ did. And so we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He says we enter through the veil. So we come through the flesh of Christ. That is his body, which was sacrificed for us. We come through his sacrifice through the veil. He says, let us draw near. He's talking about to the throne of God. He says, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. That's priestly language. Because if you go back in the Old Testament, and you read about the, the priests and the high priests and how they had to, there were all these specific rules they had to follow about bathing and the clothing that they would put on, the clean clothing before they would go into the, the temple, especially the Holy of Holies. Jesus has, by His blood, washed us, sprinkled us clean so that we can come before God. It's not a matter of we've got to go through these rituals or anything. He has already cleaned us, cleansed us. All that's priestly language. Then at the end of the last warning there, at the end of chapter 12, he, as he's getting ready to take us here into chapter 13, notice the priestly language that we find there. So just back up if you're in, in Hebrews 13 to the last two verses of chapter 12. He says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us grow, show gratitude, and here it is, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. That's priestly language. Making our priestly offerings, if you will, with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. And think again, he's talking to these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians. Some of their folks have gone back to Judaism. And he says, okay, I want you to think about Old Testament religion. And you remember what happened when they had completed the temple and the, the tabernacle and they had completed the Ark of the Covenant and all, and they got it all put together. Then what happened? And God came down in that pillar of fire and, and he would reside, if you will, down to the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And and here the author's talking about us going within the veil. And so in those early days, you know, when when there still was, you know, that God was still, you know, showing himself present in that pillar of fire or the cloud. Can you imagine how terrifying it was for the high priest to go in there when that fire was blazing at the top of the mercy seat? And he wants us to have that same image in our minds so that we think in terms of, well, we now are priests that come into the presence of God, the one who is this consuming fire. And, and the idea there is that it, remember if the priest, the high priest going in there didn't do everything the way he was supposed to, according to the regulations, that that pillar of fire would become a consuming fire. and would consume him, would kill him. Well, we are the priests now going into the presence of God, the one who still is a consuming fire. But he wants to drive home to us that our priestly service should be sober, reverent, and we can still have and should have joy in our worship, in our service but it's still sober. It's not flippant. We take it seriously. We're reverent in it. But as he's been driving home to us, we should have confidence as well. Confidence to enter the holy place, as he says in chapter 10. You see, we can come before God because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Our high priest has cleansed us. Now we're permanently clean and we can come before God at any time. So while we still have that sobriety and that reverence, we are to be confident coming in. so as we enter the presence of God, we come reverently but confidently. As we said last time, we have free access to enter the heavenly, holy place whenever we need. And so New Covenant priests, that's you and me, Possess, we possess greater privileges than did the Old Testament high priests. I'll drive that home again. So you, brother, sister, young person, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, your position as priest is higher than the Old Testament high priest. We need to remember that. We need to remember the exalted privilege that we have been given by Christ. you are a priest if you're a believer view your entire life as worship as religious service to god everything that you do even your what we call our earthly vocations whatever those might be do it that's what we talk you know in Sunday school about doing everything to the glory of god we we should think of our entire life As religious, spiritual service for God. Even the mundane things that we do in life. Don't just think it... Well, it's only the spiritual things. It's all spiritual because we're priests. And so everything we do... Think of yourself like... You know, in the the Old Testament, Priestly Orders, they had all these different orders of priests that did all these different things in the temple. Different ministries. And that's us. We have different ministries. Different ways of serving God. Different vocations. And so as we treasure Christ and the superiority, the supremacy of Christ, that should be a catalyst that energizes us, that will make this a continuous theme in worship. That it's about Christ. It's about exalting Christ. And I'm always fascinated to think about how God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, right now in this church age, they're all about exalting Jesus, God the Son. And that that always fascinates me. And they invite us to do the same, to join them in exalting God the Son, Jesus Christ. So, now let's get into chapter 13 and talk about what it is for us to be among this whole company of believer priests. Chapter 13 presents standards, duties, and character traits for believer priests. First, believer priests must manifest love for the family of God. So what he's going to do, and I'm not going to read all of these this morning for the sake of time, even though I guess I got another hour and a half probably, but um, is I'm just going to hit high points and tell you what he's talking about in these first verses here when he's talking about we must manifest love for the family of God. Verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. So that's like a heading for these first few verses. Believer priests must manifest love for the family of God. The word for love that he uses here is not what we usually see in the New Testament agape, it is Philadelphia, brotherly love, or family love is the idea. And so again, you see he's thinking priestly here. And so remember the Old Testament priests were all from, they had to be from one tribe. What was that tribe? Levi, okay? So they were all from one family. And he's saying, we, believer priests, are all from one family. We're not from a particular tribe, but we're in what family? The family of God. We belong to his family. And so we are to have that kind of family love for one another. Now, this love is going to manifest itself here in... Some of these verses that follow manifest themselves like this. Hospitality for traveling brethren, verse 2. Care for afflicted brethren, like if they're in prison, for example. Verse 3. Honoring marriage by keeping it holy. That's a part of our priesthood, is keeping marriage holy, verse 4. Not loving money, but being content with what God has given you, verse 5 and imitating those whom God used in teaching you. So, learning from one another, verse 7. So, love. That's the first character trait among believer priests. The second is that we are to rest in God's character. We should cling to these favorite verses. I want to read some of these beautiful verses Uh, that many of us have memorized. If you haven't memorized these, I recommend that to you. The end of verse 5, what a beautiful promise. God says to us, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's that's one of the precious, precious promises. He says, verse 6, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, What shall man do to me? And then look at verse 8, another precious promise. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. See, here's the confidence that we have as we cling to those promises. We never face life alone. Never. Having God, we always have enough. That's why he can tell us to be content. Because if we have God, we have enough. And Jesus Christ is forever faithful, forever reliable. Believers never need fear that Jesus might change. You know, there's been some believers who thought that it sounds like a good thing to think that, well, God's getting better all the time. That scares me to death. Because if God isn't already wholly perfect, and all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything, right? Right? then what what can I trust in? Where's my hope? Where's my confidence? But we're promised here that Jesus is never going to change and He doesn't need to change because He's perfect. He knows all. He's not going to get to some point where He says, oops, (laughs) you know, I know I made that promise, but sorry, I I can't make it happen. I tried. That's not going to happen with Jesus. Jesus. Because he's almighty God. He will never go back on his word. Third, resist false teaching. Believer priests resist false teaching. False teaching needs to be taken seriously. See, false teachers are crafty, they're winsome, and they try to introduce destructive doctrines elders are charged with keeping watch out for wolves who try to bring in these destructive doctrines. These new ideas that they introduce. That's why elders have to be skilled at teaching. And so you find in in Acts 28 when Paul is admonishing or or he's exhorting the uh, Ephesian elders. And then in Titus 1.9 where he's talking about all these qualifications for elders, but then that one about them being able to teach so that they can refute those who contradict the sound doctrine from the Word of God. The writer warns them not to be carried away by false teachings. And some of the false teachings that they were dealing with, because remember they're coming out of of Judaism, they they were focused on Old Testament ceremonial foods. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not be Carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. So, what's he's saying here? Is he talks? Why does he bring up food? Well, because people were getting hung up on some of the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law, thinking like, well, you know, you know we've been Jews all our lives, now we've come to Christ, and, but yeah, maybe we still need to do all that. And there were false teachers saying, yes, you need to do all that. You need to keep all of those, those ceremonial things, or at least some of them, the ones that I happen to like. And, and the author takes that opportunity to say, first, that didn't benefit them, it didn't save anyone. Keeping those Because they weren't intended to save anyone by keeping those rules. But he's going to say, and for you guys, there's something even better. Feed on better food at the better altar. You see, as believer priests, we have better food, even better food than the Old Testament priests. The Old Testament priests, you know, the food that they got that came from the sacrifices was, was good food because... Remember, the animals had to be without blemish, had to be the best of the flock, you know, young animals. And and so their food was wonderful from that perspective. But he's saying that what we have, the food we have, is even better than what they had. And then he even says that those Old Testament priests, unless they came to know Christ, they have no right to eat the food that we have. Well, let's talk about this food. Look at verse 10. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, Bearing his reproach. So, what's going on here? You know, if you're like me and first time you read through this, you scratch your head and you're not sure what's going on. What about an altar? I don't remember seeing an altar. This doesn't look like an altar, you know, in Christianity. Uh, and priestly food. What's what's going on here? Well, think back to the Old Testament uh, priests again. And they, they were able to have portions of those sacrifices, and only some sacrifices, they could take portions of those to feed themselves and their families. But, you might remember, that sin offerings were off-limits to the priests. I mean, it was it's like you put sin of that person and their family on to that animal, so that was off-limits. And so the carcasses, like on the Day of Atonement, would be taken outside the camp, and burned outside the camp. Outside the wilderness camp, in particular, when they were came out of Egypt, remember? Outside of the camp was a, a place of shame where carcasses were burned, where criminals were executed. And the same would cont- continue once they got settled in Jerusalem. The temple was there. So outside of the city is where... The animals would be, the carcasses would be burned, and where criminals would be executed. And you can think here, you know where he's going, as he's already said, right? Jesus was executed as a criminal outside, right? And so the writer calls believer priests, he calls us outside the camp. What does he mean by that? We, we don't, we're not in Jerusalem. He's talking about outside the camp of Old Testament Judaism. Come outside of that He's calling us out to do our priestly work. And he says, Do that bearing Jesus' reproach. You you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus was treated. Here's the Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of people, to be the promised Messiah that they had longed for and were anticipating eagerly. And they treated him with contempt with reproach and so the world will treat us that way too I mean you know that you, you talk about being a Christian to your neighbors or co-workers and others and you know there are a few that will show some respect but there's so many that will heap reproach on you but that's okay because what he's saying is that we're in good company right that's how they treated Jesus there, again, Remember we talked earlier on in the book about how Jesus came and, and established this solidarity with his people. By becoming human, dying in our place, and so forth. And so, here, we are showing our solidarity with him. That we're willing to bear his reproach with him. And, and so, he calls us outside the camp. Now, what about the altar and the food that we eat? Back in John 6, there was that passage that actually kind of confused a bunch of people and and they just laughed after that. Jesus was saying, if you want to do the work of God, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, "Mm, what? That sounds weird. But what he meant by that is that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a picture of believing in him. It's a picture of faith. And so whenever we have the Lord's Supper, for example, that reminds us of our daily priestly food, our daily priestly meal that we should be consuming every day. That is, every day, we talked earlier, work hard at resting, resting in the work of Christ. Our eating as believer-priests is continually and consciously resting on the finished work of Christ. Resting on the finished work of Christ. As we said, Christ worked. He rested when He sat down. We rest in Him, in His work. Well, if we are believer priests, you may be thinking, oh, okay, John, what about sacrifices? Offerings? Because the old priesthood had a lot of those to do. It was like a continual thing at the temple. Well, if we're priests, where are our offerings, our sacrifices? Well, we know that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has put an end to sacrifices for sin. And so we think, okay, good, we're all done. Well, not quite. Just dealing with sin, Jesus has put an end to all of those by his once forever sacrifice. There are still sacrifices for us to offer. Our priestly service is worshipful service, and so everything we do is priestly. Our life is a a priestly life, if you will, serving God. And so we are going to be doing Spiritual sacrifices, if you will, as opposed to the literal blood sacrifices. And he mentions two of them here. And look with me at verses 15 and 16. It says, "...through him then, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing For with such sacrifices." God is pleased. I guess I should turn this right. He mentions two sacrifices. So, for. I already had that. Offer spiritual sacrifices. Believer priests offer spiritual sacrifices. So, have you ever really thought about this? That there are spiritual sacrifices that you and I as believers are to offer? That we're to do? That this priestly work that we're to do? In addition to the two that he mentions here, offering up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So, that when we were singing earlier today, you maybe didn't think about it this way, but you were singing as a priest. You were making an offering to God. And that's a good thing for us to try to remember when we're worshiping God in song, is that we're offering the fruit of our lips as worship as an offering to God. And then he talks about, in verse 16, doing good and sharing. And he calls it a sacrifice doing good and sharing, but there are others as well. So in addition to these two, think about what other writers, uh, particularly Paul, talk about. Offering our bodies in service to God, Romans 12.1. For some, offering our bodies in death, like Philippians 2.17, Second uh, 2 Timothy 4.6. Monetary giving for the work of the kingdom. I hope that this can help transform you. It it did for me when I first, you know, this, I came to understand this. Whenever I give on behalf of my wife and I, my family, it's a spiritual sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to God. I'm doing that as a priest. bringing people to Christ so evangelism Romans 15:16 another spiritual sacrifice you know I know evangelism for most of us is not easy and you know we, we get timid and, and we kind of get tongue-tied and things like that and but remember this is a part of our priesthood as a priest a believer priest we are performing a sacrifice as we are seeking to bring people to Christ and then one more prayer. And this is a beautiful one, too. Revelation 8, 3, John, they're talking about how our incense, or the incense that we have. So you may think, okay, so, you know, the Old Testament priests, they had incense, and there's some you know Christian religions that will have incense in their services and that sort of thing. So why do we not have incense? Well, we do. It's our prayers. So earlier in the service, we were praying to our Father, right? And that was an incense, a pleasing aroma that was rising up to our God. Whenever you're praying at home, you're praying as a priest. You're offering up, if you will, this incense, which is, he says there in Revelation 8-3, the prayers of all the saints. So try to picture that sometime as you pray, and, and that'll help you. Because I know prayer sometimes is hard, and we get distracted, and, and maybe we find ourselves like, okay, I'm, I'm getting kind of bogged down here. Remember that it is a spiritual sacrifice. It is incense. And so pray, thinking in terms of, I'm offering incense to God. This is pleasing to Him. So biblical Christianity does have an altar. It has priests. It has sacrifices and incense. The altar is the cross of Jesus our Savior. A hundred percent of believers are priests. And we have plenty of sacrifices to perform all day, every day, by hundreds of thousands of priests around the world. There's two final duties for believer priests. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. New Testament priests, New Covenant priests, support authority. A mistake that some believers make is assuming that, well, now we've shifted from the Old Testament and all of its structure, so the New Testament leaves us in a free-for-all, everyone is on his own, no structure and no organization in the church. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is structure in the church. It's rather simple, but it is there. The word for obey... Means to put your confidence in someone. See, your church leaders have proven themselves. They don't get to be elders until they've proven themselves. They've proven themselves as those who keep watch over your souls. They pray often every day for your souls. They check in with you. They are concerned about you. They make sure that the Word of God is taught that you need to hear. They correct errors when they when it, it, it threatens to come into the church. They prove themselves, so have confidence in them, he's saying. Have confidence in the leaders that God has given you. And then he pairs it with another word, submit to them. Submit to their authority. They keep an eye on your spiritual health. And he says, know that they're accountable to God. They're not on their own. They're not... You know, the the end-all in the church, Jesus is the head of the church. And elders are are accountable to him. People today tend to reject authority. Others look with suspicion upon those who have authority. But New Testament priests support those in authority over them. And you benefit from this, as he says here. It's for your gain, for your good that you do this, that you obey them. You have a choice every day. You can either allow your leaders to do their ministry, their work with joy, or you can burden them with grief. You have a choice. When they get to serve you with joy, then they can focus on building you up. You see, it's for your good. They're not here just to, you know chase you around with a stick, whacking you. and What they want to do, the joy, is to build you up. And So let them do that with joy. It is for your good. And finally, verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner... New Testament priests pray for their leaders and Christian workers. This man who wrote the letter, we don't know who it is, but he seems to have been a leader in their church. He talks about wanting to be restored to them. Maybe he was an apostle who planted their church or ministered among them. We don't know, but he had some sort of authority, apparently. He says, pray for us. And praying for your leaders improves... The authority structure because it encourages them and it helps you to remember that these guys are accountable to God and I'm accountable to them. I need to support them, pray for them. That's what a believer priest does. And I love what Spurgeon answered. Someone asked him one time something along the lines, you know, how do you account for the success in your ministry? And and you know some some guys unfortunately well well you know I, you know went to seminary or I had this training or I had you know. Spurgeon said my people pray for me that was why his ministry was successful his people pray for him and I encourage you all here at SBC and online at GBC continue to pray for and be diligent to pray for your leaders because it's your prayers that God uses in our ministries. New Testament priests pray for their leaders. And I want to close our time in the Word with His benediction, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.